Hello and welcome to Running Through History with Coach Sensorling. What we're going to take a look at on this podcast today are the origins of the French Revolution. Um, so that is, we're about to start the French Revolution in my class, and so um, we're going to take a look at, at just the causes of it, where the, the roots of the revolution are going to come from. We're looking here at the, the time frame, we're looking here at the, at the 1700s. The, the context, the setting of the French Revolution was France had been an, a, under absolute control really since about the 16, late 15 into the 1600s. So they were controlled by an absolute monarch, Louis XIV and Louis XV. And as we get into the French Revolution, is now Louis XVI. And so when we think about absolutism, it is what it sounds like. It is total control. The king rules by what is called divine right, where he believes, he or she actually believes that they were put on the throne by God. And whatever decision they make is the right decision because God put them on the throne. So they control the politics of the country, the economy, religion. They control the arts. They have strong militaries. They're constantly at war. They try to control the flow of information to the people. I mean, they really, they, they are it. So when you think about absolute countries, such as France, it is about the one person ruling the country, not the people. And so that really is what the French Revolution is about. It's about the people attempting to turn France into a country that's not just about the one person, but about the people of France. Okay? So let's look at the causes. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is really the ideology for the Enlightenment, for the revolution, and that is the Enlightenment. For decades, these, these group of, of, um, of thinkers called philosophes had questioned, um, accepted political and religious beliefs. They advocated for freedom. They advocated for equality. They advocated for liberty, for reason. They believed that, that society could be better, that living under absolute control was not good for the sake of the people who were living in it, and they wanted all people to enjoy equal civil rights, religious rights, political rights, and what have you. So that, so their thinking, their writings, such as John Locke, Montesquieu, Adam Smith, Voltaire, Beccaria, all these guys looked at the problems that absolute states created, and they advocated for change. They truly believed that things could be better for the sake of human beings, um, for people. And so they're really, the, again, the ideology for the revolution. When they wrote, when they wrote their pamphlets and their novels and their plays and compiled dictionaries, they didn't really talk about a revolution, especially one like in France where they started to guillotine people. They didn't predict a revolution. They didn't push for a revolution. The philosophers wanted to make people aware that just because this is how things have always been done in a country like France doesn't mean that that's the best way that things are done. And again, that things can be better. So um, the Enlightenment is going to provide the ideology for the revolution. The second thing that I want to get into about the, again, the origins of the French Revolution is really the example and that's the Americans. The American Revolution added to the ideals of liberty and equality. So the French saw what the Americans had done to the British, um, and they are going to, to use that as an example. They're going to use that as inspiration. So that's the first two things. So the ideology and the example. So now let's get into France itself and what were some of the problems with France. So the government first. 
the government, you guys, was, I mean, for the most part, undoubtedly had been corrupt for quite some time. It was very ineffective. Louis XVI was the king um, as we're going into the revolution in France. His wife was a Prussian name, um, or Austrian, um, named Marie Antoinette. They are going to get married, you guys. She's going to be 15 years old, and he is 16. Um, when they are married, Louis was not king at the time. His grand, his his grandfather Louis the Fifteenth was ruling, and they are going to what they're the situation that they are going to in, in, in inherit was really, 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 I mean, just a disaster. And I'll get into that in a minute about the finances and social structure and things like that. So for for these two two kids who are going to get married and who eventually are going to become the rulers of the country, super ineffective, super indecisive, super conservative, and this are really just not going to be um, effective rulers at the at the time. Marie Antoinette was, I mean, fairly homesick. You know, she is an Austrian. She's going to be married. There, the the marriage was arranged because Austria and France were bitter bitter rivals. So the marriage was supposed to be a political alliance at the time. Um, a lot of the French people aren't going to like Marie Antoinette from the beginning just because she was Austrian, and she's going to feel that she's going to be super homesick, super sad. She's married to this guy Louis the Sixteenth, who some, um, you know. Psychologists and historians have kind of looked back at, at Louis the Sixteenth, and they have actually thought that he was um, depressed, like literally medically depressed. Um, and so their marriage was very, very, very uh, strained. So she's married as a teenager. She's in this country. A lot of people don't like her, and so that is going to 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 really impact um, how they effectively or not effectively ruled the country. So again, I'll come back to um, to that at. In, in, a, in, in a bit, um, just to kind of, again, look at, at what they're going to inherit and how really they're not suited <laughs> for, for what France needed at the time. They're just not going to be the, 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 the uh, suited for the job to really do what they need to do. All right. So the fourth thing is population and social structure. In 1789, that's when the revolution is going to start. There are about 28 million people who were living in France at the time. All people were born into what were called estates. It's a, it's a social system. There are three estates within um, France itself. The first estate is going to be the clergy. They were less than 1% of the population. They're going to own a third of the land, and they're not going to pay any taxes. The second estate, that's the nobility. They're also going to be less than 1% of the population, and they're going to own a majority of the land. They're also going to not pay any taxes. They're going to have certain privileges. And the third estate was really everybody else, and that's going to be about 98% of the population. And within that third estate, there's a wide variety of, of, of people. And so the three main groups that I want to talk about, so within the third estate, there's really a, there's a, there's a hierarchy within the third estate. You have what are called the bourgeoisie, and those are going to be, that's, that's your middle class in, in, in France. Because as we get into 1789, the Industrial Revolution had been occurring in England for about 50 years or so. So there were, start, there were starting to be a little bit of a transformation in societies, not just in England, but across, across the board. So the bourgeoisie are going to be people who have a little bit of property. They have a little bit of education. And they're going to be big leaders of the revolution in France. Okay, 
And then below them, again, all within the third estate, you have the bourgeoisie, and then you have the people who, quote-unquote, work with their hands. Those are the people who are going to be the peasants, people who are on the farms working. And then you're going to have what are called the sans-culottes, and that's the working class. Those are the people in the cities who are working with their hands there. So that is the third estate. So there's tension within the third estate because the third estate has a wide variety of people. The bourgeoisie think it's unfair that they're lumped together with the sans-culottes and the peasants and what have you. Because what matters in France, how you get put into these estates, is you're born into it. There's no mobility. So it's a very strict social system. And literally, you are born into that. Plain and simple. No mobility. So the nobility, they are going to, to rule over, the, over the, um, the commoners. And again, as I said, they're going to have certain privileges, certain exemptions, all because they were born into a certain family with a certain social class. And so one of the things that the philosophers talked about is that talent or your merit, your hard work should supersede birth. And so as the revolution started... It's really going to be your bourgeoisie. It's not your peasants. It's not your sans-culottes are going to be the people who, have, who read the Enlightenment, who read those philosophes. It's really going to be that middle class, that bourgeoisie part of the third estate. They're going to be the ones who are going to become very familiar with the writings of people like John Locke and really be influenced by the ideas of tabula rasa. If you guys remember what that is, that all people are born with this blank slate. So in theory, everybody is born equal. So your birth shouldn't hold you back in your in um, in life. All right. So that is the fourth thing. So we have the Enlightenment. We have the American Revolution. We have the government of France. We have the population social structure. The next thing that we're going to look at are the finances. Going back to Louis the Fourteenth. What he spent, you know, 72 years he was in control of France. A majority of what he spent his money on was Versailles and the military and in and, and wars. His, his, his successor, Louis XV, is going to continue the same pattern. He's going to continue to pump all this money into Versailles. He is going to continue the wars. Because if we look in the 1700s, we have the Seven Years' War. They're going to come out of the Seven Years' War beaten in a lot of debt. They're going to load a lot of money into America to fight the British. I mean, literally just loaning America millions and millions and millions of dollars to fight against the British. And the only thing that they're going to get from it is the satisfaction that Britain is going to be defeated because they never could do it. So this, what Louis XVI is going to inherit here in the 1780s is a situation where France is broke. They are broke. And if you think about who pays taxes, so go back to what I said about the estates, where the first and second estate, who don't pay any taxes? And they're the people with the money. So the people who are paying the taxes in France are members of the third estate, the people who have the least amount of money. So that is going to be the situation that Louis XVI is going to inherit. That there at France itself was at a breaking point. They are in a massive, massive, massive amount of debt. Um, Louis XVI is going to, when he is going to take power, um, one of the things that he's going to try to do is he is going to try to, he's going to hire finance different finance ministers to try to solve the problem and all the different finance ministers what they're going to come up with what their main idea their main plan which is a good one was that they needed to tap into the wealth of the country so what does that mean you've got to tax the nobility 
So the pattern that's going to emerge as we get into the 1770s, into the 17, um, into the 1780s, is that Louis XVI is going to hire finance ministers, such as Jacques Turgot, Jacques Necker, Archbishop Brienne, and what these men are going to do is they are going to come up with plans to tax the wealthy people, to tax the first and second estate, whether it's going to be taxes on food, taxes on land, paper taxes, stamp taxes, things like that. And so every time a finance minister comes up with a plan, he proposes it to Louis, and Louis says, let's go for it. You know what the nobles say? No, we're not doing that. And so what Louis does is instead of having a backbone, instead of sitting down with people, he is going to fire the finance minister. And that's going to happen at least five or six times. Whereas he's going to hire somebody, they come up with a plan, the nobles don't like it, Louis XVI is going to fire him. New finance minister, new plan. Nobles say no, fires him. All right? And so that is, is really when we look at at, at the revolution in France, all they are again. People are at, at at a breaking point. The country is at a breaking point. The nobles are still they're okay. It's that ninety eight percent of the population that are really, really, really suffering. The French people were oppressed, and they were hungry. Ninety percent of the peasants were living below the subsistence subsistence level. They were barely earning enough money to feed their families. Bread prices, bread was the main staple of their diet. Bread was so expensive. Um, and so this is going to, so that discontent within the, within the masses is really going to fan the flames of the revolution. That people are going to really, uh, you know, they're really taking notice of the injustices in the French society. So all that right there is really what what gets us to the revolution in in in, in France. That's just the the gist of it. Um, so what you know how we got to 1789 is um, after the last finance minister is going to be to be fired, and that's going to be around in, in 1788. The nobles are going to say enough of this. This is ridiculous. You keep hiring these people. We keep they keep coming with these plans that we don't agree with. Then you fire them, and it just keeps happening. This is ridiculous. So what the nobles demanded that Louis do is they demanded that he uh, convened what is called the Estates General, and the Estates General was kind of like a legislative assembly, but how it worked historically is uh, re- representatives from each estate would would meet, but y'all. Each estate had one vote. So the first estate had one vote, second estate had one vote, and the third estate, 98% of the population, they also had one vote. So what historically has happened is the first and second estate always go together and they get what they want. And so that is really going to be what the first and second estate thought would happen. Let's solve this once and for all. You keep trying to take away our money. You keep trying to tax us and take away our our um, our privileges because we were born into this certain social class. Let's solve this once and for all. So, 1788, he is going to call for the Estates General to meet the next year. They're going to meet in May of 1789. And so, what each estate was supposed to do is they were supposed to go and they were supposed to meet and talk about their grievances. 
So the first estate would meet, the second estate would meet. And the first and second estate really didn't. They didn't meet too much. They didn't talk about it. Their main problem was stop taxing us. We don't want to deal with that. We have nothing. We have nothing that we want to change except for we just want to keep things. We want to keep the status quo because we like our exemptions. We like our privileges. We like living the life that we are, are living. But the third estate, on the other hand, it's now the 1780s, and we have this bourgeoisie class who has some property, who have wealth, and who have read the philosophes of the Enlightenment. And what they do is they are going to get together, and they are going to come up with a list of grievances against the state. And when you look at the grievances, one by one, they you can see the philosophes in them. Because what they talk about is a representative government. They talk about national assemblies that are chosen by the people. They talk about freedom of the press. They talk about a law code that is for all people, not a law code for rich and a law code for poor. They talk about freedom of religion. They talk about abolishing slavery. They talk about three different branches of government. Um, They talk about getting rid of serfdom. So over and over again, I'm looking through the list right now, it is literally, you can see the enlightenment all over it. And that's what they come up with. They come up with this list of grievances that they are going to present at the meeting of the Estates General in May of 1789. So that's one thing that that is going to happen. So I'll come back to that in a minute. The other thing that's going to happen between the calling of the Estates General in 1788 and the actual meeting, is there's kind of an an awakening for not all the Third Estate, because there is a limited ability of um, technology of reaching all the masses in in France. But a lot of the Third Estate, in particular the bourgeoisie and the sans-culottes who are living in the cities, where there's a concentrated amount of people. There's going to be a pamphlet that comes out that is called, What is the Third Estate?, and so I'm going to read to you guys a little section from what is the third estate. And so I want you to imagine that we've got this meeting that's been called. They're going to meet in May of 1789. They've got their list of grievances. They hammered it out. Imagine this almost being like a pep talk going into the meeting. A coach getting up and giving a speech, getting these people fired up to go into this meeting to fight for what they deserve. Because they're human beings. So to fight for their human dignity. And it's called what is the third estate. And so listen to this. Who then shall dare to say that the third estate has not within itself all that is necessary for the formation of a complete nation? It is the strong and robust man who has one arm still shackled. If the privilege order should be abolished, the nation would be nothing less but something more. Therefore, what is the third estate? Everything, but in everything shackled and oppressed. What would it be without the privilege order? Everything, but in everything free and flourishing. Nothing can succeed without it. Everything would be infinitely better without the others. Because think about that. 98% of the population, they are the state. They are the nation. And so that is really what the third estate comes to realize going into that meeting in May of 1789. So that pamphlet, What is the Third Estate? It captures the spirit 
of the third estate, and it fires them up for the meeting of the estates general. So the estates general is going to be in May of 1789. They're going to meet for the first time, and it's really a disaster from the beginning. One of the proposals that the third estate has was, let's change the voting, because it's not fair. It's not representative, and they refused to change it. Louis XVI got up and just spoke nonsense, just ignore the third estate. So what the third estate realized is, you know, <laughs> this meeting was for nothing. Like actual coming to the meeting because nothing is being accomplished. So what they did is they got up and they walked out. And so we're done with you. And they walked down the street and they went to a tennis court. And they are going to take what is called the tennis court oath where they're going to swear that they're not going to separate until they have given France a constitution. So they really proclaim themselves what is called the National Assembly. They proclaim themselves as the government of France because they were everything. They were 98% of the population. And so that really, that's how the revolution is going to start. So we've got the origins, the long-term causes of the revolution itself, And then we've got these short-term causes that made the third estate walk out and say, we're done with this. We're done with you. We're 98% of the population and things are going to change in France. And it's not going to be just about the one person, the king. It's not just going to be about the 2% of the population. We're going to try to transform this country into a country that is for all people. Okay? So... That is the that's the that's the beginning of the revolution. So what we're taking a look at uh, in class um, is what happens. Do they accomplish their goals in the end? Are the ideals of the Enlightenment accomplished, or were they still a work in progress? All right. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you later.